Recent statistics have shown that more than 100 million people on the planet have used MDMA, making it the second most popular drug worldwide. Commonly reported effects include altered sensations, increased energy, empathy and pleasure. Since its discovery, MDMA has garnered significant interest both from recreational users as a party drug, as well as from medical and therapeutic communities as a possible therapeutic tool. Today, on the Psychedelic Frontiers podcast, we take a deep dive into the rich history of MDMA. My name is Ben Clayden, and I'm an undergraduate at the University of York, studying natural sciences, specialising in neuroscience. I'm also the president of my university's Drug Science Society, and I'm the co-chair of Drug Science's Student Society Network. I'm also the creator and producer of this podcast. Today, I'm once again joined by the fantastic Dr. Torsten Passu. Dr. Passy is a German psychiatrist, professor at Hanover Medical School, and is an expert in altered states of consciousness and psychedelic drugs. He has very recently published a book titled The History of MDMA with Oxford University Press, the first ever comprehensive history of MDMA. MDMA has a complex, often misunderstood, multi-layered history. The book provides a deeper and more differentiated understanding of MDMA and its history drawing partially on personal interviews with, the most, with most of the people significant in the history of MDMA. A link to the book will be found in the description of this podcast. Welcome back to the show, Torsten. Yeah, hi, Ben. Nice Lovely. to be here. Thank you very much. To begin with, Torsten, can you tell us a little bit about MDMA's initial discovery and some of the early reports of its effects? Yeah, so this is quite a time span which lies between the first synthesis of MDMA and the first use in humans. But okay, let's go from the start. So in fact, uh, MDMA was not intentionally synthesized as it is often reported, it wasn't. So during the, the, uh, 19, the years 1910 plus, there was a search for medical drugs by pharmaceutical companies in Germany and about different uh, kinds of medications. But there was one medication which, which was used to, to uh, get blood somewhat clotted so that open wounds, like after a burst, for example, might be minimized. And so they were looking for these blood clotting agents and they had found uh, appropriate an appropriate substance, but it came from a certain form of grass, which was living somewhere else in Asia or so. And so they had to extract the grass to get hold of the substance. So at a certain point, they needed so much of the substance that they had to cultivate, cultivate it themselves, which didn't function. So they had a lot of tries, but they couldn't get it done. And so therefore, they tried to synthesize it. And there were some rivaling companies uh, trying to synthesize hydrastinin, as, as it was called at the time. And the, the thing was that at Hanover uh, Chemistry uh, University uh, Department, they came up with the synthesis of hydrastinine. And they offered it to the company Merck, which was also eager to get a synthesis done. But this guy called Hermann Decker, a doctor of chemistry, was at last selling it to Bayer, still a very large pharmaceutical company today. And so Merck was quite unlucky, couldn't get hold of, of uh, hydrastinine. What they did is, because in the former times, they had the principle that they did not just patent a substance, they also patented the way to come to the substances, so the chemical pathway to the substance. 
that was that presented a problem to Merck because they had to find a way going so far around the original patent sold by Decker to Bayer. They had to find a, a to circumvent the patent, so to say, and they made it a few times and two times the patent office was saying to them, OK, it's too similar to Decker's or the Bayer patent. You can't patent that. And so they had to circumvent it even further or farther, right? And the problem with that was that during the process, they had to produce a lot of other molecules, which were not really the straightforward way to hydrastinine. And one of these product, intermediate product of the circumventive synthesis was MDMA. But at that point, they had no idea that that was a worthful substance in itself. And let me just mention two rumors which have been around about the history of MDMA in its very early phase. Uh, first off, there was a rumor that it has been synthesized as a uh, diet drug, an anorectic drug to lose weight. But it's completely absurd because at that point of time, there was this first world war and everybody was hungry. So why should they get an anorectic <laughs> drug? But there's also no proof. And we have a lot of documents in the Merck archive and we have gone through that. And there's zero, uh, there's nothing in that direction. But it might have been its origin, this kind of rumor, uh, in the fact that a kind of closely related substance, abbreviated MDA has been patented as an anorectic drug, but it's quite a different drug. So therefore, yeah, that is the first rumor. The second one is that one of the most prominent, prominent chemists of the 20th century called Fritz Haber, who was a guy who worked in Germany on the ammonia synthesis and got the Nobel Prize for it. Uh, he was also synthesizing nerve gases, so toxic stuff for being used in the war and stuff. But this guy, when he did his dissertation, he, this uh, it was about certain honey kind of tasting, smelling uh, artificial substances. And in the work on his dissertation, he came very close to MDMA. But we were going through the original uh, German text completely, and there was no evidence that he came across MDE, MD, MDA, or MDMA. So that's also a rumor which has been brought out and have been repeated in the literature, force and force and force. Yeah, then we coming back to, to Merck, uh, because after the synthesis as an intermediate, they didn't check the substance on itself. Then in 2000, in 1923, one guy of the Merck labs came back to MDMA and tried it on flies. Some of them were dying from it. Maybe the concentration was too high or something, but they didn't follow up that finding. A while later, they were doing research on adrenaline-like substances, like ephedrine, for example, and they were synthesizing molecules in that area. And they also resynthesized MDMA to check it for certain uh, properties, which the other molecules might have or not, and stuff like that, but there's not very much known about this resynthesis. And there was another resynthesis in, in, in 1952. And it seems that at that point, they were synthesizing stimulants uh, used to uh, for jet fighter pilots, 
but there is not very much known because there's just one data card about the resynthesis, and that implies that it was somewhat in the context of these jet fighter pilot stimulant uh, synthesis. Um, yeah, that was the point uh, uh, where uh, human experiments could have been conducted, but they were never uh, done. And then we are coming, I don't know, Ben, if you want to uh, yeah. position um, a question here or something. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you've kind of, yeah, given me yeah, a perfect sorry. place. So whilst Merck then eventually stopped their research in MDMA in around the 1950s, yeah. some yeah. other researchers began to investigate yeah. it, uh, notably the US military. So yeah. are you able to tell us a little bit about the military interest with MDMA yeah. and some of the experiments that's right. that were conducted? Yeah, that's right. That was the next step. So what they did is the American military, they tried later on too in the 1960s and 70s, they tried to hire guys from the academic world to do some experiments for them. It means they gave them money to, to do research at their own institutions. And the point was that the New York State Psychiatric Research Institute in, in New York, uh, they had gotten such an order from the military and some of the researchers were well aware of the military background of what they were doing. So they were looking into the hallucinogenic drugs. First off, they came up with mescaline. And then they had known that some guys in the 1930s have already synthesized some derivatives of mescaline. So they came to a, a substance already mentioned, MDA, which is kind of closely uh, related chemically to MDMA. Um, and they tested this drug on patients. Um, they told the patients in their favor, but the patients had no idea that they were subjects of experimental research, not to mention by the military, for interrogative purposes of interrogation or behavioral manipulation. Right? What type of patients were they? Yeah, they were usually people which had kind of psychoneurotic problems, sometimes depression, sometimes anxiety, and so on. So what they did is they treated them with, with mescaline, they treated them with LSD, they treated them also with some other drugs. Uh, we didn't know if it was dog piss or not, was one comment of the researchers at that point, because they had no idea about these substances. So they gave the the uh, one of their patients, they gave him a tenfold dose of MDA compared to the one they have given at first. So this was a drastic overdose and the patient got into epileptic seizure and died. There was, at the same day, there was another patient at, which, which, uh, uh, which they want to inject with the drug but this was a woman and she was so intense that during the injection, she, she was kind of putting it out of her vein because she detected some danger. So she wasn't dying because of that <laughs> by chance, so to say. But these, the researchers were quite in panic about this test case. So what they did is they kept it secret. So they put it the, the all the files into a file cabinet at the military institution so that it will never come out. It came out kind of 25 years later by the relatives of that person. But however, what they did is they checked what they have done in respect to toxicology experiment in advance of human experiments. They found that they have done that with two rats. 
And you, you usually, if you do toxicology studies, you're looking for the so-called lethal dose. It means you give them the animals so much that half of them will die, you know, but you have a population of 20 minimum, not two. You don't know that much. There might be a specifically vulnerable rat there. And so one is not really not enough or a specifically resistant rat or something like that. So that's the only experience what they did. did. So what they came up with afterwards is, okay, let's keep that secret. And then what we do is we do conventional animal toxicology studies in rats, in hamsters, and also in dogs with a variety of mescaline derivatives, as they were called. And in this uh, um, spectrum of substances, MDMA, MDA, MDE, also quite closely related to MDMA, and some other derivatives have been tested. However, at this point, LSD became more popular, even in the mind of the military, uh, because it could be sprayed over cities because it's so effective with in, in, in one-tenth of a milligram, means one gram is 10,000 doses. So you could spray such a stuff over a city and the people might get irritated and stuff like that and might be so confused, confused that they can't defend themselves anymore. That was their goal. Or putting it into a water reservoir on a on a Flugzeugträger, uh, on a on a, uh, a plane carrier, the, the a ship. You know, so that all people go crazy over there. So at last they found out that's not a real thing to to do because they, people get so chaotic that they could do the right thing too. And so <laughs> that wasn't worth it. But it made LSD so popular in the mind of the of the military. It also has no taste. You you have one tenth of a milligram without any odor, without or any taste. You could spice a person's drink with it quite easily. This is in contrast to mescaline, for example, which needs. 500 milligrams and tastes quite bitter. This is really not an option. And so the, I'm mentioning that because the military was going off the track with MDMA and the methylene dioxy compounds, as we could name them, the, the uh, mescaline derivatives in that specific direction, because of LSD becoming more popular. So there is no evidence left that there was any operational use of MDMA. But what has been known from the memoranda of the CIA during that time that they were explicitly searching for an searching for an MDMA-like substance without much cognitive alteration, like with LSD and mescaline, and with a more pure euphoric effect, as they called it, so that people might behave differently and might be more open to be interrogated and more suggestible and that kind of less defenses and stuff like that. Yeah, so the military did not discover MDMA. No, but they certainly <laughs> did have some experimentations with it, um, and which were eventually stopped. And then we kind of get to, I think, a very common topic in almost all of our podcast episodes, which is the war on drugs and yeah. where the research stops. Yeah. So are you able to give us a little bit about what happened to MDMA yeah. research? Yeah, it's also a pretty interesting uh, story, which uh, we have cleared up. It wasn't that clear before. Uh, what we found is, uh, what we have found uh, uh, by a kind of, how should I say, not a secret, but a not available uh, document from the DEA, uh, we found that they have detected MDMA in 1960, in, this, uh, in, the, in the year 1970, in the Chicago area. 
and and they also had some detections during the uh, later years over there. They even found a lab in 1973 in Tennessee, which was able to produce tens of kilograms. So they were well aware of MDMA, but they couldn't find any dangerous things going on with MDMA. It wasn't much distributed, no complication did arise as far as they could tell. And they had these drug abuse warning networks throughout in the United States, all the medical de uh, emergency departments were connected to the uh, drug abuse warning network. And uh, so they couldn't find any danger and they couldn't find any relevant distribution. So they didn't prohibit it for that reason. And in 1975, uh, uh, a guy, a kind of chemist, uh, approached uh, Alexander Shulgin, a major chemist in the area of psychedelic drugs, even on a scientific level, and yet all the government allowances and permits to, to do this research. So he was contacted by a chemist who said, oh, I'm here in the area and I would like to work with you and blah, blah, blah. And so they came to the conclusion that they would synthesize some uh, clandestine or, or illegal drugs to compare the sample to the underground materials and stuff. And But they were also synthesizing some things they were interested in, in a rented kind of laboratory kind of thing, what this guy has rented. And Shulgin came over and synthesized the substances with it. They also came across MDMA, and this guy was getting some sample from Shulgin to take home, and he took the material with his girlfriend and had a very nice uh, experience. So he came back to Shulgin and said, oh man, this, guy, this material could be pretty interesting. But Shulgin shelved it instead of taking it against his usual habit, because this guy was really doing a lot of self-experiments to find out about the dose, about the length of the action, and, and uh, side effects, and so on. So it was quite unusual. However, in 1976, Shulgin was approached again by another person who uh, said, oh, MDMA might be a really interesting material. You should synthesize it and try it, and so on. Then Shulgin tried it, but obscure enough he didn't get the real MDMA effect, so to say, and called it my low-calorie martini because he compared <laughs> the intoxication by a low to medium dose of MDMA to being under the influence of some martinis, so to say. And no calories around, so no, no calorie martini or low-calorie <laughs> martini. And uh, But in 1977, he was already connected to the chief of the Psychedelic Therapist Underground Network. His name is Leo Zaff. He is also uh, uh, popularized in a book published by MAPS as the chief of the Underground Network, called the Secret Chief, so to say. And um, this guy was trying MDMA and found it a fantastic experience of enormous therapeutic worth. And he came immediately back to Shulgin and said, man, what kind of the substance has you brought to me or have you discovered? And after that, Shulgin also made some systematic self-trials to find out about these specific effects and discovered them too, so to say. And when I came up with this uh, theory that he didn't get it first, first off, uh, I was uh, together with... Uh, uh, Anne Shulgin, so, so the former wife of Alexander Shulgin, and she said to me, you were completely right. He didn't get it 
just after he came back with Leo Zeff or Leo Zeff came back to him, then the whole thing took off. But he at first had not the real idea how significant this discovery or this specific drug was. And so he has been, that can be justified, named the rediscoverer of MDMA because he resynthesized it the first time. But I forgot to mention that he already synthesized it in the early 1960s when he was still working at an, a chemical company. Um, however, during Chulgin's life, he wasn't able to find the notes about the synthesis in his archive, but I stayed in contact with the archivist over there, and a year ago, he came up with the original copy from the from the laboratory uh, notebook. Wow. You know, so that's that can be proven that Chulgin cool. was right with his memory, you know. And so That's that was the true. second discovery in in the uh, mid nineteen seventies. And then, how did we get from? Because presumably, there's this very big rise in popularity, and there's a lot of hype around it. So, how did we go from there to then legislation ban? Yeah, the, and... the point, yeah, the point is there's even one step in between. What happened after they discovered these specific effects? What they did is they tried to educate a lot of therapists in, in the use of MDMA during the late 1970s and the early 1980s. So I can prove, and I've done that in my book, that the therapists were eager to not let out so much information into the public because they tried to hide it somewhat so that they can do their therapies without interfering with all the government agencies and all that. And in the US, if you synthesize the drug you want to give to a patient yourself, and there is no obvious danger, then you can do, you can give the drug to patients. If you synthesize it yourself, what they did is they showed up at Shulgin's lab, the physicians, and did their synthesis there on their own with his kind of advice in the background, right? And so they stayed legal during that time. In 1983, there was one guy who was inspired by an MDMA trip in 1979. His name is Michael Clegg. And he came, became one of the first distributors of MDMA in the party scene, especially in, uh, uh, in Texas, in Dallas, for example. And they, the thing was really taking off there because the people found it a very good stuff instead of taking cocaine, because it gives you a longer lasting high, the high is more smooth, it's less aggressive, and it's much longer implies cheaper, you know? And so it really took off. Then they found out you can really well dance to the drug or its effects. And then they began to dance in the star club, for example, in Dallas and so on. So when it became broader and broader and be sold under the desk, so to say, and you could even order it because it was legal by your credit card and, and stuff. So um, at that point, some guys in Dallas, for example, some senators which were living there and had their children going or their son and daughter going to the star club, for example, taking the new drug, they were kind of getting panicked. So they approached the DEA with some letters that they should check if that should be prohibited. And that during that phase, um, the, the promoters of MDMA as a therapeutic drug named Debbie Harlow, as well as Rick Doblin, they were showing up at the, the home of uh, Michael Clegg 
and talking to him that he shouldn't distribute it that aggressively. Otherwise, there would be not enough time to do the appropriate research to make it a therapeutic drug at last. Yeah, but however, this guy was very intense in distributing it and making a lot of money out of it. And so he did not stop and the DEA became quite a bit aware of it and tried to get out to do a prohibition. I see. That's a real shame. Um, but, right, um, alongside a lot of the recreational use that has surrounded MDMA, there more recently has been a renewed interest in MDMA as a therapeutic agent, particularly in the USA, where the FDA has designated yeah. MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD yeah. a breakthrough therapy. Um, yeah. However, M MDMA has interested psychiatrists and therapists well before the 2000s. So yeah, exactly. are you able to tell us a little bit about MDMA's history as a therapeutic tool and why it might work? Yeah, so uh, that's a pretty interesting topic. Uh, and um, what I can tell you is they had five exponents, so to say, or people which have explicitly stated that they have used MDMA in psychotherapy. So the indications which was which it was used for were terminal cancer patients, for example, with anxiety and depression because of the life-threatening diagnosis and maybe the immediate death or so. Then they have treated couples because the lowering of anxiety and defenses can be very productive in couples, especially if they have not a good time and stuff. And then they have also looked out for traumatized people and for a lot of other diagnos diagnoses at the point in time. So as I have told you, they had kind of four, four to five years where it was kind of kept secret. Then it came out. Then the DEA was eager to prohibit it. But if the DEA want to prohibit a substance, it might be also a marketed drug because they found out about dangers and addiction potential. So they try. There is a formal proceedings. There are formal proceedings which have to go on if somebody is saying, oh, I'm not quite okay with your attempt to prohibit it. And so the DEA has to announce in, announce in advance that they want to prohibit a certain drug. And so what happened is the DEA had no idea about the therapeutic use, but a few physicians hired a prominent lawyer and were interfering with the prohibition process by saying, we need hearings to, to evaluate the therapeutic potential and the safety of this seemingly effective and safe drug. And at last, these hearings were really scheduled. I don't want to go into too much details, but it was a very kind of objective evaluation at the point because they were not so much aware of potential neurotoxicity and blah, blah, blah. That was not around as much. So they really would, was, were looking objectively into the matter. And funny enough, the judge who has to decide about the proceedings and to do a judgment was a DEA law judge as they called it. But interestingly enough, he decided in a hundred page written decision in favor of the physicians. It can't be placed under schedule one. The evidence about its addiction potential is very low. The evidence about toxicity is virtually not there. It can be used safely under medical supervision and it may be able to help patients. So he concluded it can't be put in Schedule 1. What the DEA did is they put it in Schedule 1 anyway. So they had to do an appeal, these guys in the US, the doctors, 
and they did an appeal and were given right later on, partially at least, but the DEA was arguing, and this is understandable too, at that point, they had no idea about the neurotoxic effects of potential neurotoxic effects of MDMA. But exactly in this year, when the prohibition process was going on, there was a study coming out, looking out for the toxicity of MDA again, and that was alarming somewhat. And so we can understand that the DEA had no other choice by then concluding from this molecule, it might be the same with MDMA, so we have to hinder it being marketed and given to so many people. It might be a threat to public health. At that point, it was a justified conclusion by the DEA. So they put it under the law and the appeal led to another six months of being not under the law. So the so-called Grinspoon window, because the Harvard professor of psychiatry, Lester Grinspoon, was initiating the appeal. But the DEA at last won the appeal, so to say, and MDMA was prohibited. But there is still one interesting anecdote about the process initiated by the World Health Organization. Because on that level, you can prohibit a substance internationally. So they brought it to the appropriate committee for drug dependence evaluation and substance evaluation to be prohibited. But the funny thing with that committee was its chairman was a former LSD therapist. In fact, the brother of the prominent LSD therapist Stanislav Grof, named Paul Grof. Both of these guys are living in their mid-90s still. Uh, and this guy said to the, to the committee, I will be not okay with prohibiting it so uh, uh, so strictly uh, under Schedule 1. The problem was that this committee does just decisions in consensus. So what did they do? So they put it a footnote in the, in the proceedings about his not being okay with it. And they also published a paragraph which says, this seems to be a very interesting therapeutic substance WHO uh, and uh, countries should, should take every effort to allow substances under their laws uh, to allow this substance to be researched as a therapeutic drug. That was an interesting statement at, in 1986, yeah. right? Yeah, and then we are coming to the next chapter, which was mainly the abuse story. And this goes from, I will give you just a very short outline. So it came from the US, it, it came over Ibiza to the UK, where it became a big deal. I've called it the chapter in my book, the British rave boom, because they really, it was kind of, as some people have said, it was the antidote to the British mentality of too much inhibition, too less body contact, too, much, too less openness. And stuff like that. I, I tend to believe in that because it was such a boom <laughs> in the UK. It's unbelievable and still is, right? And so, yeah, then the prohibition was already over there. And then the stuff was going on with the peak in the year 2000, you could say, the, the recreational distribution of MDMA. But now I'm coming back to your question, what happened to the therapeutic potential later on? So what, what Rick Doblin, an activist in the therapeutic use of MDMA, did in 1984, he did 
with the non-consent of other guys in his organization, he did an animal toxicology study because that is definitely required to put MDMA into human in scientific studies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so there, I, in retrospect, it was quite okay. But at that time, a lot of people were against animal experimentation and so on. However, that was happened. And then it took another 15 years to get a study really done. The first uh, study in volunteers was done at the uh, uh, University of Los Angeles uh, by Charlie Grobe. But this was a study in healthy volunteers. And uh, a while later, it, I think it took another kind of 10 years to get a study started, have used MDMA in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. And they found very good success, but had a very hard way to go through uh, until the, their study was really permitted. And they had all the permissions also from the, DEA, from the DEA about the safe they had to have and everything. And let me just mention uh, two things on that, on that way. So they were approaching the IRB, the Institutional Review Board for ethical permit and all that in the late 1990s. What happened is that the, a TV show was given a very well received one, which has been looked for by, by millions. And they presented a picture of a brain with holes in it, like a Swiss cheese, you know? And what they have done is they manipulated this brain scan because when Charlie Grobe at the university in Los Angeles gave the people the MDMA, they showed a few hours after the experiments, they showed a little bit of blood flow in some regions of the brain, which is temporarily and insignificant. But what they did is they put it uh, holes or at all places where they have found a little bit of reduction of blood flow. You know, and this picture was making it around the world. I had a hard time to implement the picture in the book, but I got it done at last. And uh, it made it well uh, around the world. And I myself at Hanover Medical School was uh, on the way of getting a study permitted about the use of MDMA in couple therapy. But my chief was calling me up and said, come over. I was going over to his office and he said, you know, they have shown in the TV uh, uh, um, uh, that, that MDMA makes holes in the brain, you know. And every kind of research was stopped at that point. Also, Rick Doblin's approach was stopped and everything was kind of stopped worldwide, you know. But, uh, however, in 2000, there was another publication which came out as a scandal later on, um, by George Ricordi, a significant MDMA researcher who has done the studies uh, in, uh, uh, conducted by the DEA and, and financed by the National Institute of Drug Abuse. And what he found is that some of the monkeys which he had treated with usual doses, human doses of MDMA, were dying. And so he came up and said, okay, we have examined the brains and we found that their dopamine system was destroyed. So we have to be anxious that there is a time bomb effect going on in the MDMA users worldwide, because later on it's an accumulative accumulative dose has been reached. They will get they will get they will lose their uh, dopamine systems, and we will see millions of Parkinson patients. You know, and this study has been published in the very pr prestigious journal Science. 
So it also made a worldwide impact and stopped every therapeutic endeavor at that point. But the therapeutic researchers were so skeptic about the results of this study that they wrote a letter to the editor claiming that it is impossible that that has happened to these apes and they had a dopamine, uh, dam dopamine uh, damage in the dopamine system because there was no evidence before that for any dopamine interaction even of MDMA. So they were claiming that these apes have been treated, these monkeys have been treated with a kind of methamphetamine, but not MDMA. So a while later, this researcher who has published that study became skeptic himself and looked at the uh, animal's brains and found no MDMA in the brains but methamphetamine instead. So then he had to retract his publication because it was wrong. He did some also some experiments to prove the case, but he couldn't find any dopamine damage, nothing. And so he had to retract his paper and the therapeutic study, which was on its way already, was immediately permitted by the Institutional Review Board because it was false stuff. So later on, he contacted the company which has provided the methamphetamine or uh, MDMA, and they said, oh, we have checked all the processes and we haven't done anything wrong. Who knows what happened? It might even be possible that the DEA or the CEA has changed the bottles, labels, or something like that. That has been speculated. There's no proof of that. But it is funny that at the most important point, such a message was put it out in a very prestigious journal, which everybody takes serious. And at last, they were all wrong. That is, that's utterly, that's such a crazy story. I mean, yeah. Was it deliberately, you think, messed with? Yeah, who yeah. knows? I don't think so. And I have been told by some people, even when I was writing, writing the book, because that may, might make it a certain impact too, that, that I should not mention his name in a really, really bad framework because he was so eager to find out when he already came when he himself came up with some doubts about his results and so he is a serious scientist and might have used simply these mislabeled bottles it wasn't his fault blah blah you know but he could be also very much skeptic skeptic becoming skeptic in advance of the publication so i would say yeah well at least suspicious what he did suspicious. Yeah. yeah however then they could start with the therapeutic study and they did so at first, they want to use it uh, or want to do it at the university clinic, but they were not allowed to do so. So they put it into a private office in uh, South Carolina, in Charlotte, and uh, did the first study there with very good results. And even the follow-up uh, studies were giving very good and durable results. And so then MDMA became greater as a therapeutic drug, but it was a very stony way up to there. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, what do you think it is about the MDMA experience that has led it to have so much interest, both recreationally and therapeutically? Yeah, so the, the main thing is, and that we were aware from, on, uh, about this from the beginning onwards, and I was <laughs> a part of a conference when MDMA came first to Europe in 1985, the first time, and what we immediately perceived is that it is an, a D, an, an 
how should I say, anxiety minimizing medication. And later on, it was found out in positron emission tomography studies, PET studies, uh, that the amygdala, the fear center of the brain, is deactivated, especially, especially in the left hemisphere. So how, how would you behave? How would you see yourself if you have no anxiety anymore, but have a very clear consciousness? It means you can see sides of yourself which you might usually suppress because of being anxious about being a bad guy or having done bad things or did not behave the right way and blah, 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 or, or sides of yourself you don't want to perceive and, and so on. But MDMA gives you the freedom to explore all, all these areas, even painful memories. And that could be very useful for traumatized patients that they can go back into the trauma scenery, scenery uh, without so much anxiety. And if they have a therapist on their side, it's quite a natural thing that they go through these traumas again and can integrate them much better afterwards. And they also have been damaged usually by the trauma uh, in respect to their trust in themselves in the others, the other people, in the world, even in God and so on. So MDMA seems to, to boost trust in your soul, in your psyche. And that might be a very helpful effect. And also that you can see yourself and sometimes others without any neurotic anxieties. And that might also give you a very clear picture of who you are, what you can do, what your potentials are, what your bed size are, and so on. And that can be therapeutically, obviously, very helpful. So if it comes to, uh, to, to recreational use, which has produced, by the way, much more complications than therapeutic use, which has produced none, especially on the bodily level, because you're calm and being introverted, uh, the opposite is the case if you go to a party. You have light shows, you have sensory bombardment, you have loud music, you have a lot of people surrounding you, you have a lot of things to look at and stuff like that. So this is what I call, in contrast to the introverted therapeutic use, I call it the extroverted party use. And interestingly enough, the people don't really go into deeper realms of themselves when they are so much bombarded with sensory stimuli and also with a party atmosphere and so on. So usually you don't see people which have learned a lot about themselves when they have gone to, let's say, 20 parties. Yeah. And that was always wondering to me, because if you do it in a more introverted way, you can learn a lot about yourself and about sides of yourself which you have never thought of or or also memories which have you which you have might have suppressed or stored somewhere where you don't perceive them anymore so i think uh, that could be very worthful but the people don't do it that way so let me let me finish this uh, uh, sub episode by mentioning something which i have seen on the tv when they interviewed a major dj on from techno parties in the german tv uh, they said to him as the last question in the interview, oh, what would you recommend to the people if you could recommend something? And he said, oh, yeah, go home, take the pill at home, dim the light, put soft music on and close your eyes. <laughs> that was his advice for his techno freaks, you know, which are just, wah, 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 you know. Yeah. <laughs>
And so I think it, I, it's easy to understand why this uh, drug is so popular in party settings, because you can communicate without anxieties. You are having a certain openness on the body level. You can touch others without a problem. They can touch you. You don't feel to disintegrate because of that or, or respond with fear or so. I think it's easy to understand that. And um, uh, there has been also a saying by females that it is much more agreeable go to go to an MDMA party than going to an alcohol-driven party. And this is because the, the, MD, the MDMA party is no cattle market. It's uh, The people are much more open and they are not into genital sex. And I myself have put a lot of effort into thinking about how does that happen, that the people don't, don't go for sex, for genital sex during the action of MDMA. There are a very few exceptions I've heard, but the general thing is that you can't reach orgasm, you can't reach an erection. And so therefore it's not a, it's a sexy drug, but it's not a sex drug. And, and how could that happen? And during all my observations of, uh, of people on, under the influence of MDMA and therapeutic and other settings, I came to the conclusion at a certain point, man, this is the post-orgasmic state, what is equivalent to the state induced typically by MDMA. Because if people, people feel the same way, they are very much open, they don't feel anxiety, they are very relaxed, and they are not eager to have sex. And after directly after an orgasm, you're not eager to have sex. You're very relaxed, you're very open, you're very cuddly, stuff like that. So, and when I published this finding in, in a journal, I got a lot of letters and emails from people who said, man, you got it. You know, I've so, put so much thought into it, but I didn't get it, what it is. And it is really equivalent to the post-orgasmic state. You can find a lot of features which are similar and even... Uh, I was able on an um, on a talk which I gave. I met on the on the stage another guy who also gave a talk who was the specialist at that time about the neuroimaging of sexual reactions and the sexual cycle. And I was asking him, man, Barry Komisarok was his name. Barry, didn't you leave the scanner on when the orgasm has already happened? What happened then? And, and he said, yeah, we have done these experiments, but we have not published about them because everybody is interested in arousal and orgasm, but not in yeah. the post-orgasmic state. You know what he said? He said, Torsten, the main effect, what we have found is a deactivation of the left amygdala, so the left, the, the fear center in the left side of the brain. So exactly what's going on under the influence of MDMA. By the way, all the hormones are also equivalent to the post-orgasmic state under the influence of MDMA. So the, the similarity is kind of obvious on, on different levels. Yeah. That's absolutely fascinating, yeah. I, mean, I, I think we could probably spend a whole episode talking about the psychological and neurological effects yeah. of MDMA. Um, but because we're focusing on the history, I think it's probably right if I leave you with a question about the future of MDMA. So. What are your predictions about the future of MDMA? Can you see a potential for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy to become a frontline treatment? And do you think it will continue to be a popular choice of drug use amongst recreational users? 
Yeah, thanks for these good questions, um, especially to conclude our interview. So let me first start with the recreational use. What we have seen is a peak in the year 2000. Since then, it has a kind of steady format, the use in the Western industrialized countries. But what we see is that in the Eastern European countries, as well as in the Asian countries, as well as in Africa, uh, you see a lot of MDMA uh, tripping going on. And so there is this goes higher and higher and higher up to a certain point which will be reached in the range of what we have and uh, i think this drug will stay with us forever so to say because it's equivalent to cannabis which has stayed for us or uh, with us forever the opiates these are kind of a classic drugs so to say which will stay with us and in respect to mdma assisted psychotherapy so it has been contextualized in the psychedelic therapy realm i don't think that it is a classic psychedelic because it does not alter your ego functions as much so you're completely having completely integrated ego usually also in intact cognition during an mdma trip so it's it's quite a different kind of drug why i'm mentioning that it is because it can be handled clinically on a clinical level by psychologists and physicians much more easily than LSD or psilocybin or the like. And so the entactogens, as these drugs have been called, uh, have a great future to my eyes because they also produce very stable effects with just a few sessions. And this is not the case with, with LSD or psilocybin as much. The people which are depressed and getting psilocybin, some of them, a lot of them get better, let's say 50% or more, get better. But after a few months, the effect has been outfaded, so to say. This is different with MDMA. So it seems also what we know on the neurobiological level too, it has a different mechanism of action. And therefore, I think, especially because we have not as much measures to treat trauma, it will become a big thing, I think, in the, in the world of trauma therapy in the future. All right, Torsten, thank you very much. Um, always appreciate you. your insights. Um, Thank you very much for listening to the end of the Psychedelic Science Podcast uh, with me, Ben Clayden, and our wonderful guest, Dr. Torsten Passu. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, as well as your preferred streaming platform to keep updated on new episodes. Uh, more information can be found in the episode's description, including a link to Torsten's new book. That's all for now. Thank you and take care.